Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be doing a reaction video to a podcast, and this is a podcast put out by Credo House, and the subject of their podcast is Can God Change? And these guys, they're probably Arminians. They do talk about God's changing emotional state and how, how clear that is in the Bible, which is really funny because, you know, they, they're admitting God's clear changing emotional state, but they still retain their, their idea that God in the Bible knows the future exhaustively. And the idea that they try to peddle is that God purposely angers himself. So let's just go ahead and jump right into it. I'm Michael Patton, president of Credo House Ministries. I'll be leading the discussion along with Tim Kimberly, director of ministries for Frontline Church Edmond, Sam Storms, lead pastor of Bridgeway Church, and finally JJ Side, pastor of community and discipleship at Bridgeway Church. So I left that in just so that we know who we're dealing with here. Who are these guys that are giving us their opinions? I'm also going to skip uh, some of their intro, though. That's not really relevant. And he just jumps right into Genesis 6-6. Now, verse 5, this is getting into what we're going to talk about today. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. All right, JJ. JJ, what's the, some people might be like, amen, praise the Lord, destroy those <laughs> pagans. But what's the problem here? What's the issue at stake that we need to talk about? I think I'd rather talk about the Nephilim again. <laughs> that's, 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 that's a little, little easier. That's a little easier. No, no. no. We, we've been there, been uh, there, done that. I said how little I want to talk about the Nephilim. Now it looks attractive yeah. <laughs> compared to solving this one. Yeah. Now, yeah. what's the problem that we well, have to what, solve? What bothers us is that we broad, Christians broadly understand that God is unchanging. Um, and the fancy word for that is he's immutable. And so yeah. how can God be immutable, which he is, uh, unchanging in his purposes, in his being, in his will, and yet in another sense. So notice their definition of immutability. God is unchanging in his purpose, in his being, and in his will. And we know that God is not changing like like his will. His overall will is that all men be saved. But there's, there's minor details within his will that do change. Um, people petition God. God changes his mind in response. And sometimes God believes new things rather than what he believed before. He might have been, his will might have been to destroy someone before and then they change and he responds in turn. And sometimes the change is for his own name's sake rather than the people's change. So sometimes the change is internalized in God in the scriptures. But the Bible doesn't talk about God's unchanging in his being. And, and normal Christians understand that God became flesh. That's a change in your being. So these guys have a lot of problems ahead of them. They're in contrast to just all the stories of the Bible and and core tenets of Christianity here. In your I just, mind, is I this just a punted. <laughs> I know. I'm, 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 I intercepted your punt oh. and I handed it back off to you. Is, oh. is this a problem for you? 
or do you see it as a, as a legitimate? It is not a problem for me, okay. but I certainly understand why it is a, a, a major obstacle to many because yeah. um, we say, okay, now wait a minute. Obviously, God knew, did he not, unless we are open theists, that humans were going to rebel and fall into uh, in this remarkable degree of corruption. I mean, that back in verse 5, Tim, you read it. Uh, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Did that catch him by surprise? Yeah. Well, no, I don't think he did. I think, uh, obviously, if um, we read in 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy, did the readers of Genesis have access to 2 Timothy while they're reading it? Did Moses' listeners have access to 2 Timothy? This guy's just trying to prove text. He's trying to jump to a completely different part of the Bible written by a different author in a different century to a different audience and then take that context and just paste it over what we read in Genesis. And let's figure out what's going on here. Is he going to use this Timothy verse in order to clarify Genesis or to obfuscate? Is his use of this proof text going to make Genesis more common sense or is it going to make it more difficult? that God had, uh, before the foundation of the world, given us grace in Christ Jesus. Well, he knew that there was sin that was going to make that grace necessary. So God was aware that this was going to happen before it did. See, that doesn't explain the verse at all. It doesn't. What he's saying is, there's this verse that I want to prioritize over this other verse. And so then we just have to just ignore kind of what we generally think when reading this story over here, because I like my verse over here. And the verse he uses over in Timothy doesn't really support his case, not if he's looked into it. From the foundation of the world, that never means before the foundation of the world. It means from, like when that happens. Or afterwards, it never means before, and he doesn't show that. And his theology says that God knew time eternal, not, not from a specific point in the past. And that phrase could be interpreted as from the downfall of mankind, Adam and Eve's rebellion, or or the Genesis 6 flood. And what happens at the end of the flood? God learns that mankind is evil from his youth, and God lowers his standards. That might be a pretty good place where God is determining a new salvation plan for mankind, as some Jewish theologians claim. So how then... Can we read in verse 6 that he regretted that he had made man and it grieved him? What does that mean? Well, here's what it does to me personally whenever I look at this. And I think, I, I think that this is, such the, this is the motive problem. I don't want a God who is up there surprised about anything. Mm -hmm. That scares me. Oh, man, do you hear this? Do you hear this? He's like, I got these specific characteristics of God that I, I truly want in a God and uh, everything else is very scary, very scary. My wife is scary because my wife doesn't know everything in the future. Scary. And as this podcast progresses, you're going to learn that this is how they do theology. Uh, they take what they want God to be like. And it's all arbitrary, of course, and nonsensical. And people, people could argue about those philosophical concepts as plenty of philosophers do. But they just take it as absolute and they just impose it on the Bible. Oh, we don't care, Bible, if you support our theology. We're just going to force this on. And, and guess what? God's uh, never surprised. God never regrets anything. And in the text, God's regretting not mankind sinning, but his own action in making humankind. This is a regret of making man. 
And this is coupled with God undoing his creation, destroying everything, except for one particular person. And the text says, after God has resolved to destroy the entire earth, then Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. And the eyes of the Lord are often used for messengers or angels. It could be God himself. But this is not just God making himself sad. This is God redoing creation. What string of words would these people have to read to believe that God changed his mind? I posit that there is no such string of words in English or in Hebrew or in Greek that would make these people think that God could ever change his mind because they're not doing biblical theology. They're doing philosophical theology and then referencing the Bible as an afterthought. Yeah. I don't want a God up there that is up there and says, I have this plan. Oh, dang, it didn't work out. I'm going a different direction. Or God who basically slaps himself in the forehead. Oops, yeah. didn't see that one coming. Right. Yeah, yeah, I like to say God is the only being in existence who's never said oops. It's meant to be a comfort to us. Yeah, never been surprised. But, you know, in, you put this in terms of my salvation and his love for me and the things that I do and the things that I mess up in. And I look at this and I say, man, the world goes bad. And he's, oh, I've got to change my plan. And so it's like, you may think, wow, what is God going to do in the future with us and our salvation? Maybe he says, dang, I'm going to change my plan. I'm grieved that I came and saved people. <laughs> do you hear this? Do you hear this? They're, they're so scared of change because change means that God might undo salvation. Uh, no reference to reality. No reference to how God describes himself and his trustworthiness in the Bible. And it's based on past acts. You could trust me in the future because you see what I've done in the past. And they're going to reference later in this podcast, Isaiah 40 through 48. And that's God's point. God's point's not that I know everything in the future. God's saying, you could trust me to do my power acts that I say I'm going to do because of my precedence of past correctness, being right, fulfilling my promises, being true to my word. But within the Bible, within the Bible, God changes his plans all the time. Of course, his overall plans that he wants a human salvation, that does not change. We don't see a change in that. But sometimes there's going to be a prophet and he's going to say, hey, prophet, how about you go cook your food with human poop? And the prophet's like, that's unclean. And I've never done anything since I was a kid that's been unclean. Uh, how about we use cow poop instead? And God says, yes, let's do that instead. God changes. God responds to petitions. And these are clear changes in the Bible. Sometimes God says, I will give you an eternal house. And then he revokes that based on people's actions. And this is funny. This is funny that they're citing the comfort that unchangingness gives them. And then in podcasts by James White, he'll mock open theists because of open theists will sometimes use, you know, their emotional I can't believe in a God who preordained and forced all of this. And I get comfort that God doesn't know the future and that God's living out this life with us. And he'll mock those people for using emotionally charged arguments. But does he mock the Calvinists who that's one of their like go to's. They'll go straight to that. They're like, I have to be assured of my salvation or, oh no, because, or else I can't be sure of anything in my life. I can't trust God. Just like I can't trust my wife because my wife doesn't know the future and cannot change. 
It's this very juvenile thinking and juvenile logic that they don't apply anywhere else in their life except for theology. That's the that's, that's the kind a great of a point, Michael. Thing. This is very yeah. pa- pastoral, not just theoretical and sort of upper story conversation, but it strikes right at the heart of when people fail as Christians, they're afraid, and I've felt this myself that that they were a first round draft pick who's now a bust and that God's wishing he picked somebody else, you yeah, know, yeah, as they look yeah. at their own frailty. So, Here's the question. So, I have this so, for Sam. You're going to ask me a question. I was going to ask, you. <laughs> ask you guys a question. <laughs> Sam, Sam, does God change his mind? Now I'm an open theist. I believe God could change and God could change his mind. I never have any of these insecure days. Oh, what if I'm not good enough for God? And Oh, my salvation. I'm so insecure. I never do. Maybe... Maybe, mister, the issue is just your temperament rather than your theology. Maybe you're just generally an insecure person. That's why you can't trust anyone unless they cannot change. Uh, So I'm not trying to be slippery here when I say (laughs) yes. Um, But we have to define our terms. Um, J.J. said earlier, God is immutable. What does that mean? Well, it means that in his divine and holy character, he does not change. God doesn't get better. He doesn't get worse. Notice his nod to Platonic perfect being theology. That's not biblical theology, dude. That's coming out of the pages of Plato. But go on. God doesn't grow. He doesn't develop new attributes along the way. He doesn't lose attributes. He doesn't degenerate. What are we playing D&D here that you put your skill points into attributes and those attributes are like hard and fast attributes that have to always be true. If I'm a nice guy that I'm everything I do is in the spirit of niceness and and if I'm a strong guy I never get weaker at any point. Let's talk about attributes. It's just it's a, it's an interesting thing that what we do as Christians we say this is God and these are his attributes. And then we say, oh, these attributes are eternal and they never change. But some of these attributes conflict with each other. Mercy contradicts justice. You can't get both. You either get justice or you get mercy. And we got times in the Bible where God shows mercy and times in the Bible where God shows justice. And it's an act of choice that what God is choosing. It doesn't mean it's all necessarily arbitrary, but those two attributes conflict. So no, it's not like everything God does is in the spirit of justice or everything God does is in the spirit of mercy. It doesn't work like that. Attributes don't work like that. We only have this conversation, not in like normal day life, but when talking about theology. Maybe that's why a lot of these pagans look at us like we are nuts. Um, God's uh, life is unchanging. His plans and purposes are unchanging. But in his relationship with his people, there is change in the dynamic, in the moment when human beings uh, go in a certain direction or make certain decisions, um, God does, in fact, adapt to and respond in that moment. But, and here's my conviction, I believe that God always knew that man would take that course or that direction, and he had planned all along to adapt in the way that we read in Scripture that he does. Planned to be grieved? Yes. I believe that God often is pleased to decree his own displeasure. So this guy is doing multiple things here. He's uh, reinterpreting Genesis. This is not God changing his mind, as the text says and then describes. I mean, there's no combination of Hebrew words which this guy would accept that God changes his mind. So he has to say this is God being grieved. 
And then he has to say this is not God being grieved over his own actions, over God's not grieving himself over God making man. God has determined to be grieved over mankind because of an action he's done in the past. But the text says why God's grieving. It's because of God's past actions. God's not grieving man in this situation, not in Genesis 6. Remember, let's read the story, figure out what's going on. God is reversing his previous act because he regrets doing that act. And that act is making mankind. It's not a judgment on humans. It's just not. So those are the first things this guy has to do. He has to change God changing his mind into God being sad and grieved. And God being grieved over people's actions rather than God's own actions. God's not regretting a previous decision. Instead, God is being sad over mankind's rebellion. That text doesn't say that. So then notice how this, this idea that he's just introducing here contradicts all their assurities that they had previously. Oh, God knows I'm going to be saved forever. But doesn't God determine his own uh, sadness, his own regret? And how can you be assured in your salvation if you have a God who purposely makes himself sad randomly and undoes things that he, he decrees, things that he creates, and destroys those things? How can you be so sure of yourself when you're actively admitting that God sometimes does very sociopathic things, like psychotic, like you're, you're doing things to make yourself mad? And for why? Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just make a world that's perfect, that you know is going to work out really well, in which everyone's happy and gets along? Why wouldn't you do that? What purpose is creating all this pain and misery? What are you doing with it? Why? The fact that God does care suggests that these things aren't just God playing The Sims. He's not playing a computer game where we're people that are pawns that he just pushes around wherever. The fact that he gets sad and angry at times, and they're going to talk about his, his emotional states. The fact that he shows extreme emotion is fact that he cares. He's not going to just be making all these decrees to just get himself all worked up over nothing. Sometimes the verse says that God needs to satisfy his wrath in people. He's just going to keep killing these people until his anger subsides. And this is what they describe as God eternally foreknowing. So, In it, other words, let me define it. Repeat <laughs> so, that again for our listeners. God is often pleased to decree and ordain his own displeasure. So there are things that God has decreed will occur that he knows when they do occur, it will cause him pain. All right, so let's figure out if that works with uh, certain verses around the Bible. Jeremiah 10.24, this is Jeremiah talking to God, and he says, Correct me, O Lord. But in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. So Jeremiah is under the impression that the level of God's punishment is based on his current level of anger. Like he wants God to have a cooling off before God judges him because he thinks that God judges in the moment. He doesn't think that everything's eternally planned from time eternal, nothing like that. Instead, he thinks that God's decisions are based on his emotions in the moment, that God is making real-time decisions. Psalm 6-1 is a psalm of David, in which he echoes the same sentiment, and this is like a truncated version. He says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. 
Again, King David is talking to God as if God makes real-time decisions and uses his current emotional state to base some of those decisions on. So listen to this. This is coming from Ezekiel 16. And, you know, I'll just kind of give a summary of some of these verses. I will judge you as a woman who commits adultery. I will give you into their hands. They shall beat you. I will bring up a crowd against you. They'll burn your houses and execute judgments on you. So, this is verse 42. So will I satisfy my wrath on you, and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be calm and will no more be angry. God is satisfying his wrath. God is having an emotional outburst which gets satisfied through seeing justice done. Like when you see a murderer on the news and you're, they murder like a child or something, and you just want that person to die. And you, you get this feeling like you're watching a movie and there's just some really evil person that you want dead. You have an anger and a wrath that gets satisfied when you see justice done. And that's what God is talking about here, is that he's going to try to satisfy his wrath through judgment. So the guys doing this podcast, they have to think, oh, from time eternal, God devised a situation which would get him so worked up that he would have to satisfy his wrath through violent acts and then become calm afterwards. That's, that's crazy. What they're describing it doesn't meet the text, and it's forced onto the text. It doesn't fit with the text. It doesn't fit with how the text is written. And there's no indication in any of these texts that that's how these people were writing the Bible, that God's just going through the motions that he pre-planned for all time eternal. Instead, we get texts like this, and they're scattered throughout the Bible. They're just everywhere, that God acts in the moment. God makes moment decisions. God sometimes even consults people in the moment as to what to do. Not always, not always. Sometimes, as in Isaiah 40 through 48, God says that he's going to do something. He has a power act that he wants to achieve, and he better make sure that that actually happens because his name is at stake. And God in the Bible is very concerned about his name. And often he makes decisions based on the fact that pagan nations will just blaspheme his name if he doesn't fulfill on his promises. This picture of God is not what these people are trying to describe in the podcast. They want a God that is aloof, which is above human circumstances, beyond reacting in real time to events as they occur. They want a God completely foreign from the biblical text. There's nothing inconsistent with God saying, you know, here's my purpose, here's my plan, here's the way I want to accomplish my glory. And when that happens, um, it's going to cause me great grief in the moment. We, we've, in the history of church, we've talked about God not having emotions. There is, what's the fancy word for it? I impassable. Impassable. God is beyond passion. He, he does not experience passion. And that's something that if you look through the history of the church is pretty stable. But we're sitting here saying, no, that's not right. He, well, how, he how does can have God, passion. How can God not have passion and have Jesus weeping? Well, why did the whole church say that he didn't have passion? Because they were wrong. <laughs> I just love this. I just love how this guy responds. They're just wrong. You know, throughout all of church history, people in the church have just been overwhelmingly wrong on this one issue. So perhaps, maybe in your mind, perhaps they're wrong about other things as well, such as timelessness, pure acity immutability, impassibility, 
omniscience of all future events. You know, just, just these negative attributes that there's no real support for in the Bible. But let's skip forward a little bit because we're getting pretty close on time here. And we're going to go to their anti-open theist proof text. And where do you think they turn? Where do you think they turn? And, you know, this, this should not be very hard for anyone to guess. So, Sam, why do you not just agree with open theists? Uh, because of the Bible. Oh, you guys have shown the Bible such respect and due diligence throughout this podcast. It must be because of the Bible that you don't agree with open theism. Um, <laughs> Next. Because of Next. dozens and dozens and dozens of passages that very clearly affirm exhaustive divine foreknowledge. Okay, give me a, give me a couple. Well, just uh, Isaiah 40 through 48 would be, I would encourage people to sit down and read those chapters. Yep, I did that. Okay. which is the most exhaustive, detailed defense of divine foreknowledge. In fact, God says, let me explain to you how you can know that I am God. Here is the one definitive mark of deity. I know the future exhaustively. I know it from the beginning to the end and the end from the beginning. What? What? That was in there somewhere? I must have missed that. I thought that uh, Isaiah 40 through 48 was uh, God telling Israel that they could trust what he's going to do in the future because of his fulfillment of things he said he was going to do in the past. I don't think there was anything about a divine trivia contest where he's like, you know, I'm God because I know things. I got a lot of knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. It doesn't happen in the text. It does not happen in the text. And for him to just think that that's there and this is his go-to proof text, he's out of his mind. Yeah, so he says, my favorite proof text is eight chapters. I can't pinpoint a specific verse for people to critique in context. I can't do that. Just read these eight chapters, you'll be convinced. Guess what? I read those chapters and I came to the opposite conclusion of you. Those chapters were written by an open theist. And we have an entire podcast on this covering that. The open theistic themes in these chapters the author was not writing with any presupposition that God knew the future exhaustively. Think about Jesus in John 13. I have said these things to you before they happen, so that when they do occur, you will know that I am he. This guy's just repeating the standard arguments that White had against Sanders. And does he have any familiarity with the counterarguments? The counterarguments? He does not. And James White, he is so funny. He's like... We need to take this John verse as a deity proof text because also we don't have very many deity proof texts. Oh, and I'm insecure in my deity doctrine that we need this proof text, so it has to be what I want it to be about. In context, Jesus was just saying that he's the Messiah, that he is the Christ, he's the person that they're looking forward to. It's not a deity claim in that specific passage. It's just not. Paul says, I am. He uses the phrase, I am. Other people use that sequence of words and they're not all claiming to be God they're not all claiming to be Yahweh and it's just an imposition onto the text and within John I mean I wrote a huge thing on John just going over all the times in John which suggests that Jesus does not have omniscience of future events as well as explicitly explicitly stated in Mark 13 Jesus was not omniscient so for this to be omniscience proof text of deity that's just a basic logical failure on the part of this guy and of White. So there are just too many texts that, uh, that affirm the exhaustive divine foreknowledge of God. Yep. So basically, I would simply ask this. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? 
exhaustive divine foreknowledge. Guess what the word exhaustive means? It means like complete, like whole, and exhaustive divine foreknowledge is the idea that God knows everything to ever happen in the future. So Jesus talking about people uh, rejecting him, God talking about what he's going to do in the immediate future. These are not proof texts for exhaustive divine foreknowledge. So your best proof text in the world for exhaustive divine foreknowledge has nothing to do with exhaustive divine foreknowledge. These guys are just sitting around the table being like, oh, we're pretty good theologians here doing our theology. It's like, no, you guys aren't. What are you guys doing? You think Isaiah was sitting there thinking, oh, God is perfectly immutable and timeless and, and knows the future exhaustively. And, and the, this, this treatise I'm going to write about this uh, power contest with the false gods, that's really about knowledge. It's about trivia because God's knowledge is at stake here. I know Israel has been, you know, wayward, but let me woo them back through a knowledge contest like a, you know, here's my knowledge. Wah! Come worship me. Mmm. Mmm. It's, it's just bad reading comprehension skills. Terrible reading comprehension skills that these guys display. Let's back up one more time and oh, talk about on. open you're, theism. You're no, 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 no. I want okay. the audience to he's understand punting. open theism. He's punting. <laughs> he is punting. I want them to understand open theism in a okay. different way as well. Nice. So he's correcting my definition <laughs> of open theism. No, no, you were right. But this is just a, a, a bigger bird's eye view okay. or a higher okay. view. Okay. Um, we believe, and this is this is the crazy thing. I mean, we believe in a God that cannot be defined as God unless... He has certain attributes. Drop the mic. That's their theology right there. We presuppose who we want God to be. That's their theology. Brilliant. Brilliant. Everyone else is just wrong by default. We're out of time now, but there might be enough time left on their podcast to do a second podcast on what they're talking about because then they jump into philosophical speculation. And, that, and that's their philosophy. That's their theology. That's how they do theology is just all speculative all speculative but uh this is an interesting podcast uh you guys could uh, listen to it in full on their webpage, and that's the credo house it's called theology unplugged can god change and i'll try to put a link in the show notes and i also blogged this earlier on the god is open blog for people to have access to if you have any questions or comments feel free to throw that on the god is open webpage or start a thread in the God is Open Facebook companion page. Thank you for listening.